0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this Word on the Street special, we discuss the latest market volatility amid rising tension in Ukraine and central bank plans for increasing interest rates, with Phil Attreed, Head of Wealth Specialists, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments.
1: Hello and welcome to this A Word on the Street special edition. I'm Phil Attrey, Barclays Head of Specialists, and I'm joined today by the hopefully familiar and reassuring voice of our Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs. Now, we thought it would be worthwhile updating you on our latest views midweek amidst what have been some pretty dramatic and active investment markets right now. So several different things seem to have Come together, if you like, in recent days and weeks. Some of them seemingly pretty technical in nature. uh, But the upshot being that once again, the proverbial investors' apple cart has most certainly been upset. So, well, I'm hoping you can explain what's going on and maybe, maybe more importantly, A, whether it's a good time to buy and B, what the investment team are really worried about, if indeed anything at all. Mm. So, well, if we start with the what's going on piece, you spoke a little bit last week in the podcast about markets having some readjusting to do. So specifically the challenge of central bankers switching from several years of trying to boost inflation to suddenly trying to increasingly urgently actually rein it back to target. So is that still the story here? Or is there a little bit more to it? Because I noted yesterday's significant market reversal. That seemed a lot more indiscriminate in truth than just being about inflation. And the volume of trading was definitely notable.
2: Yeah, Phil, I'll try and provide some reassurance and some explanation, but you'll be able to tell me at the end where I've failed on both. But let's give it a go. So and it's been a while since we've had to do one of these kind of, you know, emergency podcasts to try and explain stuff, which I guess is is, is a nice thing, a sign that things have been a bit calmer since uh, in market land since the beginning of the pandemic. But no, you're right. There's a lot of stuff going on, and the focus of the concerns is shifting around a bit in truth. So Ukraine, central banks, and inflation, as you as you pointed out, and some extreme investor positioning that we had going into this moment. Now, personally, I think at the heart of all of it is the idea that we could conceivably moving be, be moving into a kind of new macroeconomic paradigm, one where inflation, not deflation, uh, is the more threatening enemy for uh, central bankers to engage with. Now. In some ways, uh, and you and I know this well, you know, we're hardwired to be what's called, you know, momentum investors. So if something does well, uh, and that's not just us, you and me, it's, you know, all of us human beings are hardwired to be momentum investors. So if something does well for a sustained period of time, be it a company asset class or a mode or style of investing, we increasingly find it very difficult to imagine scenarios where that thing doesn't do well. Now, personally, I think this is one of the, uh, you know, the key ways that our behavioral shortcomings can make markets slightly inefficient, offering opportunity to those, you know, able to lean against these bouts of, you know, what we call extrapolative euphoria or even, you know, even extrapolative pessimism, you know, things just getting worse and worse. Anyway, in this case, investors had become very used to a world where Central banks were throwing everything, like you said in the introduction, at boosting inflation low real interest rates, uh, you know, quantitative easing, etc, etc, etc. Now, this, alongside some very specific aspects of the kind of global regulatory back- backdrop, which is often slow to catch up with step changes in technology, as you know, the global tax regime, and many other aspects of the environment we've been living in, has created very conducive conditions for certain types of companies, sectors, uh, and even asset classes to really prosper um, at the expense of others. Now, 2022, if you think about it, was meant to be a year when we got to think about the potential for a transition into a world uh, where central banks got serious about fighting inflation, Suddenly, it's not theoretical. It's a year when the major central banks are going to be really busy raising interest rates several times, uh, halting QE uh, (quantitative easing), uh, and maybe even starting to sell some of their giant bond portfolios. Now, put that together with the worries about Ukraine, a short, sharp hit um, showing up now from uh, uh, from a micron, like I say, showing up in the data we're seeing right now, and some very nervous and poorly positioned retail investors in the U.S. among several other things, and you get yesterday. <laughs> So,
1: yeah. Yeah. As you say, a very active day uh, in markets. Uh, mm-hmm. You touched on it there. So, is there anything we can say around the Ukraine escalations? Because obviously, we're getting a lot of headlines coming through on that at the moment. Is this uh, a conflict that can be avoided?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. In a short word, um, I would reiterate, obviously, warnings about armchair generals and so on. I have no qualifications as a kind of geostrategic expert, and uh, I'm sure many others who are claiming to be don't either. Um, but if you want a kind of plausible de-escalation scenario, I think uh, the Brookings Institute put out a good note on this, on why uh, a military incursion would represent a giant and quite unlikely escalation on the part of President. Putin, the intent here in their review, opinion could be seen as more intimidation and in an attempt to uh, kind of bend NATO's regional objectives uh, a little bit more to, you know, Russia's objectives, perhaps low conviction, obviously. Uh, these kinds of situations, as history speaks pretty clearly on, contain plenty of risk for sort of accidental escalation apart from anything else. Uh, you know, World War one start is often, you know, the, the, uh, the assassination. Uh, amazingly botched assassination and eventually successful uh, assassination attempt of the Archduke uh, Ferdinand is um, is often seen as the kind of ultimate example of this. Now, you know, we've got, you know, the commodity exposure in our funds and portfolios is at, at helping to act as some buffer at the moment. And obviously that broad diversification, we spend a lot of time in portfolios that is providing some, uh, some resilience for the portfolios in this situation. But again, I mean, the main message is when the main protagonists themselves don't know what uh, what comes next, be wary of those who would kind of authoritatively second guess them.
1: Couldn't be an episode with a bit of his without a bit of history in there. <laughs> um but let's loop back on inflation and and obviously therefore interest rates because again another sort of big area of focus as it was for us for for much of last year. We are now, as you say, seeing Omicron spread rapidly around China, and I suppose you know is that a worry? For investors and particularly when thinking about inflation and, and interest rates.
2: Yes. I mean, I, last I saw on this, you know, a micron has been detected in all first tier cities in China and 13 of the 31 provinces. The latest activity data out of China actually show a, you know, a pretty rapid slowdown in household consumption already in motion. And the property market remains pretty wobbly too, as we all know. You know, we talked about that with the Evergrande affair. But for our purposes, I guess one quite plausible concern for the year ahead is that Omicron reinserts some havoc into supply chains, you know, thanks in part to China's zero COVID strategy. Um, This delays the long-looked-for peak in inflationary pressure. This in turn forces central central bankers around the world to kind of ratchet up interest rate uh, expectations and even action. And even though this is not a tool that really can do anything to affect supply chain problems, as they all point, uh, and the following thing you know if you want to go to the worst case scenario the economy chokes and you get a short sharp uh, recession now to be clear that's not our base case it's hard to handicap just how likely that is right now but still the most likely scenario to us by some distance is is a bit more benign so the hump in inflationary uh, inflation comes in the first half. At some point, demand remains relatively solid as a micron passes, and some of these kind of giant excess consumer savings accu- accrued during the crisis begin to be deployed. Now, in this context, if you think about it, rising interest rates and some kind of what's called monetary normalization, they're taken as a positive sign, uh, indicative of an economy that looks, you know, for the most part, pretty healthy actually. And that, that, that's kind of what the underlying trend in the data is still telling us.
1: And so briefly, why should higher interest rates be having the effect it is on stock markets, on companies, and in particular on certain sectors? Yeah, I
2: mean, there are a lot of theories here, as you know, and it's quite hard not to be seriously boring to normal human beings when talking about it. There are lots of moving parts. But I think the most intuitive answer really to me surrounds the way that higher interest rates affect the valuation of future cash flows of different companies and sectors and asset classes. So, you know, think about a company where a lot of today's value incorporated into the price is based on an assessment of huge profits in the future, even if they aren't making much today. I mean, that's classic of quite a lot of sort of, you know, very exciting tech companies that, you know, are still sort of, you know, developing their business model. Mm -hmm. Now, if real interest rates are very low today, inflation-adjusted interest rates, then an investor might find it easier to favor those inherently more risky future cash flows. However, as interest rates rise, the kind of riskless or uh, less risky return from keeping your cash on account, or maybe uh, you know lending to a pretty safe government over a very short term, the attraction of that goes up a bit if you think about it. The return you can earn from that kind of much less risky activity, that if you think about it, provides stiffer competition for other assets. And tech is an obvious sect- sector, like I say, where uh, you know the belly of your future cash flows is often seen in the distant future, and so you know therefore you can see that this is you know this has been one of the sectors worst affected. Effect- Uh, The same can sort of apply to the broader asset classes. So people talk about commodities being a shorter duration asset, for instance. Uh, So that means that it can do well during rate rising cycles. I'm massively oversimplifying, obviously, but you said briefly.
1: Nope. Uh, It is all about competition between the asset classes. And so that probably leads me quite neatly onto the question of how are the diversified funds and portfolios that we're running for clients faring through all of this? I know we've talked about it again before that we've been tactically overweight stocks, particularly in the developed world at the moment. You know, that must be hurting performance given some of the moves that we've seen in the last week.
2: Yes, well, actually, so I'm happy to report, Phil, that so far they are behaving pretty much exactly as we would hope. Now, as you know, you know, we deliberately spend a lot of our time looking at areas that have been unfashionable for a while and keeping an investment foot in that often pretty unloved camp as a result. So the diversified commodity exposure I just talked about has provided, you know, has provided very useful op- offset. Um, to other areas which have been struggling so far this year. Now, now diversified commodities obviously did very well last year as well. But uh, the decade before was one to forget for the asset class. So, you know, you could have, if you just looked at that decade before, you probably wouldn't have owned it. Similarly, so-called growth stocks have been all the rage this last decade in particular. And we have, and we do have exposure to growth stocks as well, but we're grateful at the moment that we also have exposure to value stocks, an area which has been, you know, increasingly unfashionable for the last few years. And again, that's provided a little bit of offset. Now, our TAA, that's, uh, you know, the tax class allocation you just talked about, the package of tilts to asset classes that we use to try and add to performance, little performance cherries on top of that uh, performance cake. It's actually uh, neither really adding or detracting meaningfully at the portfolio level so far this year after having a very good few years in 2020. Actually, the last decade has been pretty good. So yes, we are overweight developed world stocks, as you say, but we are underweight junk credit sterling and emerging market local currency debt, which has provided some offset. So, you know, overall, at the time, the various teams that we're lucky enough to have here spend thinking about and implementing diversification across our product range is proving time very well spent at the moment.
1: Good to hear, Well, good to hear. And finally, maybe most important and frequently asked question is now a good time to be uh, dipping a toe into the water if you're not invested, topping up if you are invested and have a bit of cash on the side, or is it the case that we're better to wait for a little while for slightly calmer entry points?
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, this is obviously very, very important, and I'll try not to give you too mealy-mouthed, you know, you know, answer as I usually do, you know, on the one hand and on the other. I think there's a few points obviously to make. I mean, you know, point one should be titled humility. You know, nothing about the last few years should have given the soothsayer community any confidence in their ability to accurately predict the future. The bits that we think we can see pretty accurately on top of this, you know, are reflected into market prices already. That's not invariably. Otherwise there'd be no point in doing active management and the returns that we've, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've managed from TAA and manager selection and so on. But, you know, starting point should be humility. Now, Second point to that end, um, if you look at the latest reading of our investor sentiment indicator, it is in deeply depressed territory. at uh, Levels consistent with getting paid actually more often than not to do the opposite of, uh, you know, so the point here is that there's already a lot of these worries about interest rates, peaking monetary and fiscal policy support. Ukraine already incorporated into prices. That doesn't mean the prices can't fall in the future. Of course not. However, the bar for a further deterioration or new incoming news flow to prompt a further deterioration is meaningfully higher than it was, say, a month ago. The Third point, and I've sort of already made this, but the world economy still looks okay to us. You know, Omicron is warping the signal a bit, of course, but, uh, and there are all sorts of distortions associated with the pandemic to work through. However, the outlook for global demand, um, still looks pretty okay to us. And the finally, and I think this is probably the most important point that I'd want to make is, you know, Always uncertain times lie ahead, as they always do. The regulator will tell you past performance is no guide. That's a really important thing to not just hear, but understand. There is an argument, I think, also to say that this is amongst the most uncertain moments of the last few decades. Maybe more. We, you know, we have changed you, me, and everybody, uh, and the world economy has changed with us. We just can't really see how much yet. Now, in that context, the allure for investors is not in some promised near-term stock sector or asset class outcome, positive or negative. It is associated with the growing sense that the productive spurt of the last few centuries, following millennia of stagnation, is really just the beginning. Our, our collective saw of useful knowledge, you know, as you and I have discussed in detail, continues to grow rapidly behind the scenes. Thanks to the advances of artificial intelligence, some of this growth is actually moving beyond our ability to even explain with theory. Now, of course, we can never know when or exactly where this growing store of understanding will pay out in the form of investment returns. However, the point of investing is always to be ready and waiting, sensibly diversified. History tells us that the wait will be worth it, uh, providing you don't get sucked down too many high conviction rabbit holes. We can never promise performance, as you know. What we can do is promise professional and turning up to markets in well-organized, carefully thought out, extremely minutely due diligence fashion. And that is what we will continue to do on behalf of our clients.
1: Thank you, Will. And one very, very final question, one that I can't resist, um, and it's probably in that high conviction area, and I bet you can guess what it is. We continue to get a pretty regular flow of inquiries about Bitcoin and other cryptos. And of course, Bitcoin's prices, I mean, basically folded in half in the space of two months. Worth a pump at these levels? And if not, why? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Phil, uh, I'm afraid I speak for myself. I have little more hair that I can feasibly lose, uh, particularly in winter time, and I get a little enough sleep as it is. So, I mean, I, this remains a kind of white knuckled ride of a uh, speculative asset that I tend to sort of steer, I, I steer completely clear of personally. But it, it's one that still hasn't solved the inherent contradiction at its core, and, and, and that is. If it's going to be seen as a store of value or a currency, a medium of exchange, then stability And a degree of boredom needs to be offered. This has always been important uh, in a medium of exchange. If you think about it, I just can't have the value of what I can buy change dramatically on my short walk to the shops. That just makes it too uncertain. Uh, On the other hand, if it does offer stability, then it's a pretty rubbish speculative asset. So I think, you know, here the interesting point is, is it, you know, real interest rates that are really helping to highlight that these may be, you know, that these cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin, offers no coupons or cash flows in which to get your valuation teeth into. And as the interest rate, the real interest rate available on government debt, i.e long backed securities offering a positive cash flow pretty reliably, thanks to, you know, governments mostly having the monopoly on uh, violence and taxes. Those things become, again, it's, it's that real interest rate story, isn't it? It becomes much more competitive for other asset classes to, uh, com- you know, to, 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 to struggle against once it tips into positive territory.
1: I won't be holding my breath to see it in our client portfolios anyway, certainly not in that diverse five Thank you as always, Will. We'll look to wrap up there. And of course, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this Word on the Street special. As always, we'll be back with more colleague insights at the end of the week. We hope you'll be able to join us then.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.